Welcome, surviving members of human civilization. <laughs> so nice to see 33% of your face today. <laughs> and thank you, Galen Roshi, for providing me with this opportunity to uh, see what happens here. <laughs> it's being recorded, right, Vicki? Yes. Oh, great. Okay. Uh, this morning, I would like to briefly uh, touch upon a fundamental facet of uh, our human condition, and that is laughter and humor and the relationship and ours uh, with the Buddha Dharma. So enlighten up as we, <laughs> as we delve into exploring humor and laughter in the teachings and our, in our own um, practice lives. I wanna start off by exploring the role, if any, of humor in the early teachings and the Buddhist position, if any, on the subject. The Pali Canon has a reputation for being humorless. <laughs> and I think that that same reputation can also apply to other foundational religious texts like the Bible, the Torah, or the Quran. And I think it stands to reason that when one's eternal salvation is at stake, and being banished to hell for eternity is a distinct possibility. <laughs> or, or one is staring down trillions of rebirths into samsara as a parasite in a yak's rectum. <laughs> it's not the time for giggles. It's understandable. <laughs> in the wailing discourse of the Polycanon, for example, one is instructed or warned uh, of laughing excessively or showing one's teeth. <laughs> and from the Dhammapada comes this uh, major league buzz kill. <laughs> what laughter? What, why joy when constantly aflame? Enveloped in darkness, don't you look for a lamp? Right. <laughs> well, it turns out there are indeed many forms of humor in the early teachings, and yet it can be easily overlooked. One reason why, why humor in the first turning of the Dharma wheel goes unrecognized relates to uh, its style, which is subtle, deadpan, and dry. And so often it goes over the heads of us modern folk who are used to having our humor being telegraphed well in advance and being more pervasive throughout uh, the texts. Uh, another reason may be because the translators themselves may have missed the fact that a passage was meant to be humorous and so translated it in a flat, pedantic way. In the canon, it seems that there are subtle, discrete instances of humor. And overall, the primary reasons for employing humor as a teaching device is as a means of fostering disenchantment and discernment to help see through enthrallment and illuminate the ridiculousness of and folly of following after impermanent sense gratification. So let's take a look at what humor looks like in the uh, early teachings from the Pali Canon. Excuse me, come on spaghetti. <laughs> now on that occasion, okay, here's the first passage. Now on that occasion, the monks of Alavi were having huts built from their own begging, having no sponsors, destined for themselves, not to any standard measurement that did not come to completion. They were continually begging 
continually hinting, give a man, give labor, give an ox, give a wagon, give a machete, give an ax, give a spade, give a chisel, give rushes, give reeds, give grass, give clay. People harassed with the begging, harassed with the hinting on seeing the monks would feel apprehensive, alarmed, would run away, would take another route, face another direction, close the door. Even on seeing cows, they would run away, imagining them to be the monks. <laughs> I think the modern day equivalent to uh, this story is uh, when you answer the doorbell and there's two guys on the front porch wearing <laughs> shirts and ties with bicycles and a handful of pamphlets. <laughs> Most of these stories uh, in their original form are quite long. So what you're hearing is the uh, abbreviated versions. So this next story, deals with uh, lust and the not wise decision to try and seduce a nun. <laughs> the story reads like an extravagant poem with exquisitely sensual tones. This nun, Suva, was walking through a mango grove when she is approached, accosted by uh, a young man. Throughout the poem, the young man goes on and on and on about Suva's beauty and how he will give her a beautiful life and she's wasting it in practicing the path. As the story continues, Suba counters the man's advances by reiterating her commitment to her practice. And then finally focusing on nothing, finally, finally, finally focusing on how there's nothing dearer to him than her eyes, she responds by essentially saying, you like my eyes so much? And with that, she plucked out her eyeball and says, here, you can take my eye, it's yours. The poem go up, goes on now with the young man freaked out and begging for forgiveness. Uh, by the way, Suba had her eye restored when she visited the Buddha and saw his excellent marks of merit. Now this aspect of the story certainly accords with the emphasis on viewing the human body in sheer biological terms, which is often conveyed as gross and unappealing. Suba's eyes may very well have been stunning, but when one is, but when one of them is rolling around in the palm of her hand, it kind of shifts the romantic perspective. <laughs> then there's the love song of Panasika. Did I say that right? Panasika, uh, who is a Gandabas. Uh, Gandabas is uh, our devas who have uh, reputations for being adolescents of the devas in the deva world system, immature. This deva of utter and naive ignorance performs an outrageously inappropriate song from the Buddha, mixing themes of love and sex and finer things with the Dharma and enlightenment. Throughout the sheer cringe of the performance, the Buddha politely sits there listening. And all the while we're reading the story, we can't help but wonder what's going through the Buddha's mind in the face of such ludicrousness. When performance is over, the Buddha offers a masterclass in right speech and skillful means by complimenting the deva on his singing and lute skills, while at the same time avoiding any mention of subject matter. Perhaps he recognized the deva's intentions were sincere, but seriously misguided. So devas, brahmas, other non-humans, palace life, psychic powers, viewpoints opposed to the, to the dharma, 
human foibles and weaknesses are all right picking in the canon for some form of humor or another. Again, with the ultimate goal of illuminating the foolishness or peril of following after any following after anything other than the Buddha and the path. This next tale is called Conversations with the Gods. Once there was a monk named Kavada. One day a thought occurred to Kavada. Where do the four great elements, the earth property, the wind property, the fire property, and the liquid property cease without remainder? That is to say, the monk basically wanted to know where the physical universe ends. And so by means of profound concentration, the way leading to the gods appeared in the center of his mind. And he approached the gods of the retinue of the four kings and asked them, friends, where does the physical universe end? And the gods responded by saying, we also don't know where the physical universe ends. Go ask the four great kings. Their, their knowledge is higher and more sublime than ours. So he approaches the four great kings and asks them the same question. Where does the physical universe end? The four great kings don't know either, and they send him to the gods of the 33. Kavada asks the gods of the 33, and they also don't know, and send him to Saka, ruler of the gods. And Saka doesn't know where the universe ends either. And on he goes, asking the Yama gods, the Santusita gods, the Minnanarali gods, God Sunimita, and God Vasa, Vasavadi, all don't know where the physical universe ends. So again, Kavada arouses his incredible concentration and gains access to the retinue of the Brahmas. And again, asks the question, and they don't know either. But after a while, the great Brahma herself appears and Kavada asks the question, friend, where do the four great elements, the earth property, the wind property, the fire property and the liquid property cease without remainder? The great Brahma answers, proclaiming, I, monk, am Brahma, the great Brahma, the conqueror, the unconquered, the all-seeing, all-powerful, the sovereign lord, the maker, creator, chief, appointer, and ruler, mother of all that has been and shall be. Kavada considers this and says, friend, I did not ask you if you were Brahma, the great Brahma, <laughs> the conqueror, the unconquered, the all-seeing, the all-powerful, the sovereign lord, the maker, creator, chief, appointer, and ruler, mother of all that has been and shall be. I asked you where the physical universe ends. <laughs> and so they go back and forth like this for like three times until finally the great Brahma takes the monk by the arm, leads him off to one side and said, these gods of the retinue of the Brahma believe that there's nothing that the great Brahma does not know. There's nothing that the great Brahma does not see. There's nothing of which the great Brahma is unaware. There's nothing that the great Brahma has not realized. This is why I did not say in their presence that I too don't know <laughs> where the four elements cease without remainder. So you have acted wrongly, acted incorrectly in bypassing the blessed one, the Buddha, in search of an answer to this question elsewhere. Go right back to the blessed one and on arrival, ask him this question. However he answers it, you should take it to heart. So Kavada does exactly that. 
he asked the Buddha himself, where do the four great elements cease without remainder? And the Buddha responds by offering Kavada this verse. Where do water, earth, fire, and wind have no footing? Where, where are long and short, coarse and fine, fair and foul, name and form brought to an end? And the answer to that is consciousness without feature, without end, luminous all around. Here, water, earth, fire, and wind have no footing. Here, long and short, coarse and fine, fair and foul, name and form are all brought to an end. With the cessation of the activity of consciousness, each is here brought to an end. So I was actually surprised that the Buddha gave such a thorough and specific answer. Um, I like this story, it kind of has, a, I want to talk to your manager vibe to it. <laughs> Like he's working his way up through assistant manager all the way up to the CEO, and finally the CEO is like, I don't know either. <laughs> For the most part, humor found in a Pali canon accords with the Buddha's directives on right speech. That is, is it true? Is it timely? Is it beneficial? And does it come from a kind heart? I say for the most part, because the humor found in the canon comes from at least four different sources. Uh, the reported speech of the Buddha himself, uh, sometimes from his awakened disciples. In other cases, humor can uh, come from more ordinary folks, lay and monastic. And yet, in, in yet other instances, the humor can come about in the way the compilers, the translators of the canon shape their narrative. So before moving on, I just wanted to share a quote and an observation about two living masters of the old school. Tanisaro Bhikkhu observes, I found that if a student cannot laugh at his or, his or herself, that student's practice is going to crash. And as far as smiling and showing teeth, uh, that's what exactly what Bhikkhu Bodhi uh, is doing in a photograph in the foyer. It got taken down with us there when I wrote this. Uh, of him green ear to ear and taking joy in the Dharma as he continually works to end hunger worldwide. Joy in the Dharma. As far as for humor in Zen, there isn't any. <laughs> I couldn't find a single instance of uh, humor, levity, jocularity, wit, mirth, or whimsy. I did find a thesaurus, though. <laughs> Once during Dokusan, a student asked her master, is it okay if I use email or should I just handwrite all my letters? And the master replied, yes, you can use email, but with no attachments. <laughs> <laughs> Humor in Zen is employed for quite different reasons than in the Pali Canon. And it's not always humor necessarily. We often get the impression that of playfulness as the backdrop of some of these seemingly serious encounters. One functional role of humor in Zen is to point out the absurdity in attempting to classify reality into categories. An example of this can be seen in a Zen antidote about a Zen master who uh, lay dying. His monks are all gathered around his deathbed and the senior monk leans over and asks the master for any final words of wisdom for his monks. The old master weakly tells them, says, tell them truth is like a river. The senior monk relays this message to the other monks. 
The youngest monk in the group is confused and asks, what does he mean that truth is like a river? The senior monk relays this question to the master and the master replies, okay, truth is not like a river. <laughs> <laughs> so we see here a, a serious message wrapped up in a humorous package. Uh, the absurdity of trying to classify things into little boxes. Truth is and is not like a river. It transcends classification and conceptualization. Humor and Zen stories can function to collapse dualities between the sacred and the profane or the holy and the mundane. As in Uman's response to the question, what is Buddha? With Uman responding, dry dung. Or Tozan's reply to the question, what is Buddha? With Tozan replying, three pounds of flax. So these are, aren't, aren't exactly um, punchlines, but we can see the playfulness and um, the silliness of it all. Other functions of humor and Zen can serve to illuminate the harmony and opposites, seeing non-duality within duality and vice versa, sort of like the yin-yang symbol. Laughter can appear when the distance between two con contradictory ideas is suddenly eliminated, such as realizing that the snake is actually a stick and it's okay to come down out of the tree now. <laughs> <laughs> Some monks were quietly sitting in the garden of a Buddhist monastery on a calm, beautiful day. The prayer flag on the roof started fluttering and flapping in the breeze. A young monk observed, flag is flapping. Another monk said, wind is flapping the flag. The Chan master of Hui Wang, Wei Neng, overheard the two monks talking and declared, it's your minds that are flapping. Centuries later, another famous Chan monk, Wu Men, commented on this episode, flag, wind, minds flapping. Several mouths were flapping. <laughs> so that begs the question, what's the sound of one mouth flapping? <laughs> Check out this bombastic rant from A. Hey Dogen. <laughs> Happily ignoring the formal tenets of right speech. This is from Fascicle 72 of the Shobo Genzo, the uh, treasury of the true Dharma eye. Uh, yeah, it's an excerpt. Do not listen to the words of unaccomplished Zen masters. They speak like this because they do not know the body and they do not know the mind. Or they say so because they do not have compassion for sentient beings. These human-faced dogs, human-skinned dogs, who have turned into unwholesome dogs, have no intention of guarding the Buddha Dharma. They just want to consume the urine and excrement of lay people. Okay, is Dogen really that upset? <laughs> um, and this is, this, is all, this is all around people with uh, maybe um, confused uh, ideas of um, lay and monastic practice of home leavers and householders. I imagine um, he has a lot of rants and tirades. Um, I imagine there's a, I like to think there's a sly smile behind, uh, behind these. I like to hope so. I imagine this man in 13th century Japan sitting there with his pen and ink and going, hmm, I called him a human face dog. What about a human skin dog? Yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> Maybe he thought, you know, this fast call is just an internal document that's just going to cir circulate around a few uh, 
a few local temples. It's not like it's going to be around in the 21st century with <laughs> tens of millions of people reading this. <laughs> okay. If I keep on going on like this, explaining to you how and why something is humorous, the less funny it becomes. In fact, I considered giving this talk in the driest academic tone as possible, and I actually found several serious dissertations and theses written as such, in such a manner. Playfulness, humor, levity, and laughter are all good medicine, perhaps even vital for an enduring and fruitful practice. And for this to be possible, we must allow the path factor, the eightfold path factor of right speech to serve as a guardian, if you will, protecting self and other from harm through recklessness or thoughtlessness. We risk harming friends when our humor is gib, glib, excuse me, self-gratifying or dismissive of, of other circumstances. The Buddha was precise in his description of right speech. He defined it as abstinence from false speech, abstinence from malicious speech, abstinence from harsh speech, and abstinence from idle chatter. In the vernacular, this means not lying, not using speech in ways that creates discord among people, not using swear words or a cynical, hostile, or raised tone of voice, and not engaging in gossip. Reframed in the positive, these guidelines are just to say only what is true, to speak in ways that promote harmony among people, to use a tone of voice that is pleasing, kind, and gentle, and to speak mindfully in order to in order that our speech is useful and purposeful. Right speech is a mindfulness practice where we continually ask ourselves, is it true? Is it timely? Is it beneficial? And does it come from a kind heart? I refer to right speech as a guardian in part because if our practice of right intention isn't sufficiently developed, right speech can be there to step in and turn things in a different direction Right speech can serve as a kind of antivirus program, keeping an eye on all the bugs and flaws of our fickle karmic consciousness. So crucial is the practice of right speech that it appears twice in our vow to uphold the 10 grave precepts. I vow to refrain from false speech. The Dharma wheel turns from the beginning. There is neither surplus nor lack. The sweet dew saturates all and harvests the truth. And again, as the sixth precept, I vow not to slander in the Buddha Dharma, go together, appreciate together, realize together, and actualize together. Do not permit haphazard talk. Do not corrupt the way. One fruit that is gained that all of us can have and share is uh, through meditation practice is the faculty of non-reactivity, a spaciousness that opens up between our thoughts and our actions. In this case, speech. A buffering space where mindfulness can establish itself and take root by upholding the tenets of right speech and by continually cultivating the spacious non-reactivity. We can be humorous and playful with one another as we all practice on the path together. The Dharma gate of ease and joy is always open and always accessible. So finally, yes, 
There's humor in the Buddhist teachings, of course there is, and always has been. I invite you to explore this aspect of the teaching, this facet, perhaps seeing the lightness and cleverness and sarcasm sometimes even in these stories and koans. Thank you.